Okay, welcome and happy Sabbath to each one of you. Glad you're here. We're looking at the times of Daniel 11 and 12. And uh, really, it's a major focus on the 1290 and the 1335. So those of you who've been attending our evening seminars, you're familiar that in the breakup of the Roman Empire, Islam comes in, the Israel and Jerusalem from the south, and papal-led Christianity comes in from the north. And actually, in our worship service this morning at 11 o'clock, we're going to look at who the allies are of the king of the south and the king of the north and how that ties into our political situation today. But you're familiar with this, and you're familiar with this chart of the three conflicts, Arab, Islam, and the Crusades, Ottomans, time of the end, all three of which are in Daniel and Revelation. Three woes in Revelation, three conflicts uh, in Daniel 11. And so there was a problem, though, as I was studying this. In Daniel 11.29, it says, at the appointed time, that's the second conflict, but it won't be like the former, the first one, or the latter, the third one. Well, if it's the time of the Ottomans and the Reformation, as verse 29 to 39 appear to be, that should bring you somewhere, plus or minus a little bit of the 1300s, of 1300 there, for the date. However, In Daniel 11.31, a couple of verses later, it's when the papacy gets the force of arms, and that happens in 1798. I mean, not 17, I was thinking way ahead, 508. And when the French King Clovis gives the military support to the papacy. Hmm, how can that be in a sequential prophecy that you're at around 1300 and then at 508? That was the only problem I knew of in this whole thing. Well, I, right after my book was published, I was working on this and I came to the conclusion I had to have an answer. Other people wanted me to have an answer too, but I really wanted an answer. And my book was published and I said, okay, Lord, I don't care if it means I've got to backtrack and pull back everything I said in the book. I want to know the truth on this. And so not very many people in the U.S. want to have any kind of seminars between Thanksgiving and Christmas. (laughs) It's just not a good time for any kind of a seminar. And so I was home and I said, Lord, okay, I've got these days. I'm going to just sit at my desk and I'm going to work on this one. I need your help. I had a hunch it might have to do with the time prophecies of Daniel 12, which I didn't understand that well yet either. And I started the work. And I noticed something in Daniel 11. There are three time periods mentioned. There's for a time, the king of the north would have power for a time. There's the appointed time, and there's the time of the end. I thought, hmm, that's interesting. I kept looking at it because what I know about Daniel, he's very consistent. And so I'm looking at the other prophecies that we have for Daniel, and I'm trying to understand how does Daniel do things. By the way, if you really want to understand a person, you focus on how they do things, right? Same thing when you're studying a chapter of the Bible. You try and figure out how the writer does things. And I noticed 
that in his other visions of Daniel 2, 7, and 8, he always has a vision with the prophecy that tells you the what, and then in the follow-up information, he gives you the when. It's consistent. And in Daniel 11, 2, the 12, 4, you have the what, and you're going to have the time element with when in the following information in chapter 12. All right. So verses 5 and following, you should find time element, and you do find three time periods mentioned afterwards. None during. You have the time periods with the name of them, but it doesn't tell you the time element, how long. In, um, so, so here's what we have in 12.6. And one said to the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the river, how long shall the fulfillment of these wonders be? The wonders are the Daniel 11 vision. Now he wants to know the time element. It's just like in Daniel 8, he had the uh, vision of the cleansing of the sanctuary. And he says, how long will the vision be? And it's then that he's given the time element of 2300 days. So you ask the time question, you get the time answer. Daniel's consistent. Well, let's go to the first period in Daniel 11. It's for a time. Verse 23 and following, you have the rise of the papacy, the final king of the north, and it says, and he will be there for a time. Doesn't tell you how long, it's just he's going to be in power for a time. Well, you go to the additional time... Information in Daniel 12, you know, Daniel 11, 2 through 12, 3 gives you the what. 12, 5 and following gives you the how long, the when. So let's go take a look at that. 12, 7. That it shall be for a time, times, and half a time. And when the power of the holy people has been completely shattered, all these things shall be finished. So I'd always assumed the little horn is the papacy, the king of the north is the papacy, that time should be the same, 1260 years. Time, time, and half a time. And then it just dawns on, it's been sitting right in front of me in Daniel 12 the whole time. Yes, it is 1260 years, just like the little horn. Time, times, and half a time. Day for a year, 1260. All right, so that part was easy. And that's from the decree, the Justinian's decree when it was enforced to make the Pope the leader of all Christianity in the Roman Empire, gives them both political and religious power until 1798, the French king, uh, not king, but General Berthier, takes away the papal government in Rome. So he had power for a time, and then it was taken, and it happens to be the right number of years. The hard one, though, is the appointed time. Lots of Bible commentators, commentaries don't even try to explain the appointed time. Here's one of the reasons. In Daniel 11.27, the appointed time is future. Verse 29, you are now at the appointed time. That makes sense, right? It's future, now you're at it. But you go to verse 35, and it's still for the future. How can it be future, present, future in a sequential book? 
Now, there's a, you can tell something's going on in here, so maybe we're not too far off base when we see verse 29 is around 1300 and 508 and 31. Something's going on. But again, thankfully, Daniel always gives clues to what he's doing, and here's what he's doing right now. So let's check the next time prophecy in Daniel chapter 12. Maybe it will help us understand the appointed time. Appointed time has something to do with the time prophecy. It picks a time. All right? Next time prophecy in chapter 12 is verses 11 and 12. And from the time that the daily sacrifices is taken away and the abomination of desolation is set up, there shall be 1,290 days. Blessed is he who waits and comes to the 1,335 days. So you've got 1,290 and those who wait just a little longer get a blessing. Huh. Should be easy, except it's not as easy as you might think, because in Daniel's writings, there are two abominations of desolation. If I'd only been thinking more clearly, I would have been excited at this point. It's going to explain how it can be future, present, future again, if there are two of them. Because if there's two ending points, you're going to have to have two beginning points, and that's what you've got. Now, the first one is Daniel 9.27. Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abomination shall be one who makes desolate, even until the consummation, which is determined, is poured out on the desolate. Well, Jesus takes this and applies it directly to the fall of Jerusalem. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. That was literally fulfilled in 70 AD, and because the Christians knew about this, uh, they weren't in Jerusalem when it fell. They had escaped. So 70 AD is the abomination of desolation. Well, if you run 70 AD and run 1290 years from it, I want you to notice something. It comes out right at the end of the Crusades, but before the Ottomans are really in power. And I went to check online to find out what was going on in the year 1360. I don't know history well enough that you give me a year, I can tell you everything that was going on that year. All right? But I knew I should be looking for one of two types of events. Either the rise of the Ottoman Empire or the rise of the Reformation. And actually, in verses 29 to 39, it talks more about the Reformation than it does about the Ottomans. So I should keep both the Reformation and the Ottomans in mind as I go looking for these dates. So what happened in 1360? Well, in 1360, a guy by the name of John Wycliffe is beginning his work. He's known as the morning star or theoretician of the Reformation. Would that have anything to do with the beginnings of the Reformation? Definitely. That was exciting. And so I started wondering, I wonder what 1335 would do. Well, that brings you out to 1405. In June of 1405, the Pope sends out a decree that the Bishop of Prague is supposed to silence a guy by the name of John Huss. He was teaching the writings of Wycliffe. 
when they tried to silence John Huss, at first he thought maybe he should obey the church, and then he reconsidered. He thought, no, really, I need to be following Jesus and the Bible, not the church. And he became what many call the first practicing reformer. Let's see. Would the theoretician of the Reformation, Wycliffe, and the first practicing reformer have anything to do with the beginning of the Reformation? Definitely. So that's right on track. Also, by 1453, the Ottomans are now strong enough that they take Constantinople. During this time period, you have the rise of both, the, between these time spots here, you have the rise of the Reformation, you also have the rise of the Ottomans. The two things described in verses 29 to 39 for the appointed time. Hey, this was getting exciting to me. Uh, for several years, I thought I was the only one, I, I thought I was the first one to find this. I explained it to lots of people and they agreed with me, but I had never heard it anywhere. And one day, it was a snowy weekend and I curled up by my wood stove and I wanted to read something. And I pulled out a book called Prophetic Faith of Our Fathers. It's a three-volume set. It's about how Bible prophecy is interpreted through, the, through time. Now, for somebody who likes Bible prophecy and history, it's a fun read. Otherwise, you're not going to like it. <laughs> and uh, so I was looking at it, and all of a sudden, I discovered in that book that there was a guy by the name of William Hale that was teaching this stuff back in the 1830s. Oh, well, I thought I was the first one to find it, but I wasn't. But a lot of people dropped it. Well, everybody pretty well dropped it. But all of a sudden, I realized it was really important. Now, in a book called Great Controversy, talking about the Reformation, except, except among the Waldenses, the word of God had for ages been locked up in languages known only to the learned, but the time had come for the scriptures to be translated and given to people of different lands in their native tongue. Wycliffe, the time had come. This was written about 50 years after Hale was teaching this, could well have known of it from Hale. Uh, Both the writer of Great Controversy and Hale had been involved in what was called the Millerite movement. Uh, So the time had come. It's kind of interesting. The world had passed its midnight. The hours of darkness were wearing away and in many lands appeared tokens of the coming dawn. Wycliffe wasn't the dawning of the, he wasn't the break of day, but it was the beginning of the dawn as it's starting to lighten. In a chapter on Huss and Jerome, it says this, so perish God's faithful light bearers, but the light of the truths which they proclaim could not be extinguished. As well might men attempt to turn back the sun in its course as to prevent the dawning of the day, which was even then breaking upon the world. So you have the dawn beginning, but you have the break of day or sunrise with Huss. Between 1360 and 1405, you have the introduction to the Reformation. And by the way, is there a blessing here? Because when the Reformation breaks out, you get the Bible in common languages and righteousness by faith being taught again. Is that not one of the best blessings that could ever be? So that was interesting. But remember, there's a second abomination of desolation. What happens when we look at it? Daniel 11.31 It 
says this, And forces shall be mustered by him, and they shall defile the sanctuary fortresses. Then they shall take away the daily sacrifices and place there the abomination of desolation until the time of the end. Oh, this one actually is tied to the time of the end. The first one is tied to the fall of Jerusalem. Hmm. Well, you get the French king Clovis gives his power over to the papacy in 508. And the abomination of desolation is when the papacy gets the force of arms or military support. And so all of a sudden, bam, you've got it. So from 508 to 1798, 1290 years. Huh. He loses his military support. It's the French king that gives it to him, and it's the French nation that takes it away. 1335 brings to the 1843-44. Technically, the biblical year is from spring to spring. It's not January to January. And uh, so it takes you in the 1843-44. And this is to bring you out to the time of the end. And at the seminar last night, we found out that the... 2,300 days brings you to 1844 in the time of the end. Bam. That all fit. I went, wow, hey, that's neat. We're tying everything together. And so what do you have is from 1798 to 1843, you have the introduction to the time of the end. Interestingly, we're going to find out at 11 o'clock that the allies of the king of the north and the king of the south in the time of the end conflict come on the scene during the introduction. So they're in place by the time you get to the time of the end. That's something I just noticed a few months ago (laughs) Uh, that that was happening in there. So from this black line to this black line, you have the rise and fall of the Reformation because by this time period, they're accepting the counter-Reformation teachings of futurism uh, and preterism. You also have the rise and the fall of the Ottoman Empire. By 1840, they have um, become the sick man of the East and thrown there and protected by the military powers of Europe. And so you have, like I said, these lines. Before it is the former, and after it is the latter, the time of the end. And by giving you the time prophecy points for the appointed time, The earlier one doesn't have any time prophecies. The latter one uh, has one, but indirectly. But this one locks down the beginning and the end of it, so there's one before it and there's one after it, and you know when the beginning and end of this one is, so you know where before and after is in Daniel. Now, I want you to notice that Daniel does use overlapping, and that's what he's doing here. With Within an event, he can overlap. In Daniel eleven forty four and 45, you have tidings from the east, tidings from the north, the final warning message. The papacy, the king of the north, goes out and attacks God's people, but it comes to his end. Daniel 12 tells you how it happens. You step back in time. So verse 4, Daniel eleven forty five is here. 12, 1 steps back to when Michael stands up, which is when the papacy is attacking God's people. There's a time of trouble like there never was. The papacy ends and Jesus delivers his people all at the same time there. And he, for each of those three, remember he use, gives you the clue at that time, at that time, at that time. Once he's past the overlap, he starts, stops using the term at that time. 
It's just like in Daniel 11, the appointed time is future, it's present, it's future. He drops a verbal clue in here to tell you when he's doing it. So what I find is that we have a localized application from a very literal event of the fall of Jerusalem. Localized abomination of desolation, you get a localized application. Everything up through Daniel 11, verse 30, applies to the Mediterranean world, the conflict going on there. But in verse 31, it goes back to when the papacy gets the force of arms and they start being a global power. And now it gives you a globalized religious application. You have a literal abomination of desolation. You get the literal localized fulfillment. You have the globalized abomination of desolation. You get the globalized uh, fulfillments. Daniel is so interesting in how he does this stuff. Now, I want you to notice uh, that there's something in the Hebrew about this. Um, Back in October, I was... And been kept up. I was presenting at a Daniel 11 conference of scholars in Michigan. And I was presenting in the morning, and all night long, my mind was working over some of the questions people were asking. And I was tying together some of the localized, globalized stuff. And, you know, I, I can remember laying there in my bed, just my mind's going through, and it's putting things together. Ah, finally got it. Okay, Lord, can I go to sleep now? <laughs> I've been there awake on my bed for a couple of hours. Oh, I start going to sleep and all of a sudden a new application hits me. I said, no, I'm going to go to sleep. <laughs> and my mind's working on this one for a while. And I'm changing my presentation for the morning because of it. And I have one question. I am not a Hebrew scholar. And when I walked in, there's this friend of mine who's a re- probably the best Hebrew scholar attending the event, a guy by the name of Roy Gain. And I walk up to him, I said, Roy, Daniel 11.31, is it Vav conjunctive or Vav disjunctive? That made a lot of sense to Probably nobody <laughs> in here. Somebody, if you know Hebrew, yeah, and I don't know Hebrew well, but I knew enough to ask the question. He said, oh, it's Bob disjunctive. I said, thank you, Roy, and I went and made the presentation. If he would have said Bob conjunctive, I would have scrapped it on the spot. I'm serious about the text, okay? I'm not going to say something that's contrary to the text. What does Bob disjunctive, Bob conjunctive mean? Avab conjunctive means it's an ongoing story. It's all the same thing. But get this, when you get to Daniel 11.30, it's Vav disjunctive. There's a break in the story. The Hebrew grammar says, whoops, we got to the end of this one, now we have a break. Even the grammar matched. That was important. And here's another one. Jesus matches. When Jesus in Matthew 24, this is exactly how he reads Daniel. 
Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Okay, that was literally fulfilled by the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. But Jesus goes on and he keeps talking about it. And he gives another application. Some people said he gave a twofold application. Well, there are two abominations of desolation. For then there will be great tribulation, such as not been since the beginning of the world until this time, no, nor ever shall be. And unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days would be shortened. First, he talks about the fall of Jerusalem and what the believers are supposed to do then to flee. Then he talks about a global application that happens at the end of time. Wonder where he got that. He said he got it from Daniel, and Daniel has two abominations of desolation. The first one is localized, the second one is globalized, and that's exactly what Jesus does with it. It just took me years to figure out what was right in front of my eyes. So when I tell you, man, you might be looking at something and all of a sudden go, why didn't I ever see that before? It's because I'm doing it all the time. (laughs) I, I, I understand that really well. Then if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ or there, do not believe it. For false Christ and false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonders to deceive if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. Therefore, if they say to you, look, he's in the desert, do not go out. Or look, he's in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For wherever the carcass is, there the eagles will be gathered together. So Jesus is obviously taking this second application right up to his coming. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. So Jesus gives a literal and a global application to Daniel's abomination of desolation. And there are two of them in the book of Daniel. One of them is the literal fall of Jerusalem. The other is the globalized. And the papacy makes a globalized spiritual attack on the prince of the covenant. They attack the heavenly sanctuary. You don't go to the heavenly sanctuary for forgiveness. You go to them. The Roman government attacked the literal sanctuary and brought an end to the literal sacrifices. And the papacy attacks the spiritual one and it takes away, tries to take away Jesus' sacrifice and put themselves in its place. Isn't that interesting? It all is tying together. That leaves us the time of the end. And uh, let's take a look at the time of the end. There is no time prophecy in Daniel 12 to tell you where the time of the end is. It doesn't need to be because it was already given in Daniel chapter 8. Here's what it says in Daniel 8. How long will the vision be concerning the daily sacrifices and the transgression of desolation, the giving of both the sanctuary and the host to be trampled underfoot? Pagan Rome, the Roman Empire, attacks the earthly sanctuary. The Holy Roman Empire, the papacy, attacks the heavenly host, tries to bring the heavenly down to the earth, replaces what Jesus does with what they do. Isn't that interesting? It's in there all over the place, this double-layered part. 
to be trampled underfoot. And he said to me, for 2,300 days, then the sanctuary shall be cleansed. Goes on, though, and says, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. But he said to me, understand, son of man, that the vision refers to the time of the end. The 2,300 days takes you to the time of the end. So, that would be 1844. And the 1335 brings you to 1843-44. Man, all of a sudden, all these different dates, the 2300 days, the 1260, the 1290, 1335, and the 1290 and 1335 again, they're all interconnecting with each other and the events of Daniel. And they all fit in their interconnection. It's like I finally found the last pieces of the puzzle and it fit together without forcing it. There's this, oh man, hey, this is cool. They fit, they fit really good. Now, some people are going to argue that the time of the end starts in 1798. Whoops, that date got moved over. I'll have to move it back. <laughs> it belongs right there. And uh, others are going to say 1844, and I'm just here to say that's really splitting hairs. Because this is the introduction to the Reformation. This is the introduction to the time of the end. That's what toad is, time of the end. And so you have a growing understanding of what these Bible prophecies are, but it really breaks out in this time period here. Now, biblical reasons that 1844 is the time of the end. Number one, Daniel 8, 13 to 17 pegs it as connected with the 2,300 days, which we just looked at. Uh, Number two, Daniel 12, verses 4 and 9, tell us it's sealed till the time of the end. Chapter 826 told us the 2,300-day vision, or your vision was sealed. And historically, that was understood. Let me tell you what happened. Uh, In 18... 30s, there were a group of people that were studying Daniel and they realized that somewhere around 1843-44 something was going to happen, but they misunderstood it. Let me illustrate how little things matter <laughs> in the Bible. They looked at it in Daniel 8, you know, it talked about Jesus coming to the Ancient of Days in clouds. Well, they said, oh, he's coming in clouds, that means he's coming to the earth. That's not what it said in Daniel 8. It said he came to the Ancient of Days. It didn't say he came to the earth in clouds that time. But they made an assumption that he was coming to the earth. Assumptions can be dangerous. And so there was this movement in the 1840s that was saying Jesus was going to come in 1843 or 1844. Do you think Jesus came in 1843 or 1844? No. And they were terribly disappointed and embarrassed. And some of those people thought, you know, the Bible can't be wrong. Maybe we were wrong. And they went back and they looked at it. And they had one of these moments. It says he went to the Ancient of Days. It didn't say he was coming to the earth. Little things in the text matter. Because they end up keeping you from going way off base if you pay attention to little things in the text. Well, when was it that they understood it wasn't until 
they were wrong in 1844. And they went back and looked at the Bible and that, oh man, how'd we miss that? So that understanding, which was supposed to be sealed, came in 1844. This would be tied to it as well. Also, there's a link between being made white or purified with the time of the end. Well, the heavenly judgment begins in heaven when Jesus replaces our record with his record so he can reward us as if we did what he did. That begins in 1844. That would be the time of the end because you're made, the records are made white during the time of the end. And that matches Daniel 11 and Daniel 12. Also, the seventh trumpet, third woe of Revelation 11, is while the dead are being judged. Well, there's a judgment going on in heaven in 1844 and after. Huh. Another one. From right on 1844, it's the longest and last time prophecy in the Bible. It brings you up to the time of the end. Jesus says nobody knows when he's coming, right? If I was to tell you I know when Jesus is coming, you should totally ignore everything I'm saying. (laughs) All right? Jesus said nobody will know the day or the hour. So be careful of anybody who claims to know that. But get this. You get to 1844, you are now in the time of the end. Jesus can now come at any time. Thus, you are logically in the time of the end. Add to that Revelation 10. It's a prophecy that a little book would be opened, Daniel. It was the one that was sealed. A little book would be opened. It would be sweet as honey, but it would turn bitter. Well, there was that Millerite movement in the 1800s that thought Jesus was coming, and it was a huge interdenominational movement. It was so big that somebody ran a joke ad in Washington, D.C. that said William Miller would be on the steps of the U.S. Capitol explaining the prophecies on a certain date. Thousands of people showed up to listen, and William Miller wasn't even in town. When the Millerites were holding camp meetings, the trains altered their schedule to match the Millerite meeting schedule. And they brought in extra trains to bring people in and out. Uh, Their camp meetings had tens of thousands of people attending them at a time. It was a huge event in the 1800s. But it said they would be embarrassed. It would become bitter. God doesn't miss. He knew what was going to happen. And then it says, there's time no longer and you're going to have to go do it all over again without a time prophecy. Because once you're in the time of the end, there's no more time prophecy. You're going to have to share the message, but this time without time. And that is going on right now. So you have all these time prophecies. They come to an end. You are now in the time of the end, but you have a growing understanding of all this from 1798 to 1844. They get it wrong and they only get it corrected once they get to the time of the end. The history is amazing that go along with these prophecies. Um, So I'm really 
very convinced on this now because it all linked together. Some people want to apply the 1290 and the 1335 to some future events. Usually as literal time of about three and a half years from the event to the, to the coming or close to the coming of Jesus Christ. Well, remember, Jesus said, no one knows. And I'm just kind of of the opinion that no one knows actually means no one knows. I'm pretty simple on that. Jesus says, don't do something. It means don't do it. Don't even try the set times for his coming. Especially when you have in Revelation 10.6, it says, and there's time no more meaning no more prophetic time periods. So I'm not about to set those times. And I know some people are doing it. What time do I need to be done? Oh, good. I've got time to finish this up easily and pull a couple of questions from you guys. If you have any, hopefully you do this time around. (laughs) And... uh, So here's what I want to do. Um, First off, before I do, let me take some questions right now. Does anybody have any questions on this before I open up another can of worms related to it? Any questions on what I've done? My wife tells me that I just gave people the graduate level stuff. (laughs) Yes, sir. Oh, they've got a mic that they're bringing to you. <laughs> there you go. Uh, some of this is really hard to follow and understand. But That's if what I, my wife tells me. <laughs> if, if up until the mid-1800s, the truth was pretty much being taught and people were understanding the truth and following the Bible. And then the papacy did all these things. And so after that what a lot of good people have become are victims of deceit? Yeah, uh, it's not just the 1800s. Um, Back in, between here and here, the papacy started putting it together, its deceits. It then gets military power to enforce them. And the illustration is, all this trouble is happening but God's going to take care of it in a heavenly judgment. The heavenly judgment starts here and goes on. It's cleansing individuals' record from sin, but it's also judging the papal system so that when Jesus shows up and destroys it, he's got the legal right to do so. And the reformers were on the right track. And, and Correct. People go, but then people have fallen victim. Right. So the reformers, in this appointed time, in this time period, the reformers start challenging the errors that have been taught. Then that reformation is strong, and then the errors start coming back in again. That's kind of the challenges that we're facing. History tends to repeat itself. And I see that. The interesting thing is that the prophecy shows the repeat. You have from the abomination of desolation to a blessing, from the abomination of desolation to a blessing. What's the blessing here? The fall of the papacy militarily 
and the gospel, and the uh, judgment starting in heaven when our records are purified by Jesus Christ, based on His death back in t- when He was here on the cross. It's just Daniel. It's just showing how there's a consistent behind all this stuff. God has it tied together, and it's moving according to a very detailed prophecy, and it never misses. And if it's never missed through all this, and people say, oh man, that's all complicated stuff. Well, if God was able to put all this out there thousands of years ago, and it's all happened, you have any question that what's little tiny bit that's left right here is not going to happen according to plan, just like all that did? This should be giving us assurance that everything is working. And although the world's going crazy, God is still in control. It went crazy here. It went crazy here. He tried to fix it in here. He's working on fixing it here to bring it to its final conclusion. God knows what he's doing. That's what I hope you can take away from this. And by the way, yes, there is a lot of detail, but what I've done, I didn't share share all the detail with you. (laughs) Uh, I shared most of it, but what I've done here is to let you know if somebody has questions in challenging this, there's a lot of detailed answer to answer the questions. Let me give another application. When should you start sharing what God has given you? When you get all the answers answered or when he starts giving you things to share? You need to start sharing right away because you're probably never going to have all the answers. All right? When I started sharing this stuff nearly 20 years ago, it makes me shudder to think of what I didn't know. (sighs) But God was so kind, he would give me one question after another that somebody would challenge me with, and I would dig into the text, I'd find the answers, and I'd go, oh, wow, that was neat. The challenge that scared me ended up making it stronger. By the way, if you need the strength in a bone, you've got to stress the bone. If you want to strengthen your faith, you're going to have to have it stressed. And so, over time, I got these harder questions. And about 10 years into it, I was getting slammed with this question. And I dug in and I found the answers and it's gotten better and better and better over time. And so, at this point, I don't know of any questions on Daniel 11 and 12 that I don't have know the answer for. Did you hear me say at this point? Because I've been there before and then a new question pops up. (laughs) And if one of you today was to challenge me with a question that I don't have the answer for, I would just simply take it as God saying, here's your next area of study. Because he's done it over and over again. And I encourage you to do the same thing. You share what God has given you, what you understand. And when somebody challenges you, it's God telling you where you need to dig in next and study. Does that make sense? Don't take a challenge from somebody like they're your enemy. Accept it as God using somebody to challenge you and it will end up for good. And, you know, like right now, I go into this conference and... 
I'm going into people with all kinds of PhDs and different viewpoints, and I'm not worried. Because at this point, I have a biblical answer for everything they've ever thrown at us. And by the way, that gives inner peace. If you're trying to protect a spot that you don't have an answer for, you don't have peace. Or if you know you're not in harmony with Scripture somewhere, that'll eat at you. And you need to look for answers any place where you know there's a weakness. God has the answers. Yes? Kind of the question I had was, as these reformers came forward, they were being shown new things, right? Correct. So it was a learning and a developing and understanding. It wasn't a review. Each one added on. So God was allowing them to have time to learn more. That way they could apply that to their lives. Uh, Had they gotten it all at one time, they probably wouldn't have understood it, right? (laughs) Okay, some of of you, your head's spinning, right? Would, Would that be a fair assumption? Yeah. I probably just gave you too much. That's what my wife tells me all the time. But, just think, if God would have given the Reformers everything at one time... It would have blown their circuits, and then what would they have done? Yeah. And so, I'm going to give you a lot of stuff, and then I'm going to tell you, just remember the basics of it. You don't have to remember all the details. And if you get challenged by somebody, you know that they're there, and you've got an idea of what to go looking for, or you can contact me, and I'll give you some material. On my website, there's a paper on this. I do need to update it, because I wrote it several years ago, and I've learned a lot since then. And I need to update it, but I don't like writing very well, so sometimes it takes me a while to update something. (laughs) Besides, if I wait a while, I'll learn more, and then I can (laughs) update it and not have to write very much. But anyway, there are ways of going back to it if you want it. All right? Any other questions? All right. Now... I want to, oh, by the way, if you want to get our newsletter, you go to our newsletter, our website, islamandchristianity.org, and you can sign up for our newsletter there. You can watch all kinds of videos there. You can get lots of materials under resources. You can see where we're doing things, when, and a bunch of different things. Now, I want to tell you something. I'm going to talk about why you shouldn't be setting times for the coming of Christ. And to do so, I want to talk about somebody in the Seventh-day Adventist Church, one of the three founders of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. The Seventh-day Adventist Church came out of the Millerite movement. That was that movement that made the mistake of setting a time for the coming of Jesus Christ, studying Bible prophecy that broke into Adventist and Seventh-day Adventist. Adventists were those Millerites that were talking about the advent of Christ, and then there were Seventh-day Adventists that talked about the advent of Jesus and the Bible prophecies and the coming of Jesus. Three primary leaders, Joseph Bates, James White, and Ellen White. Ellen White was a person who claimed to have dreams and visions. That's either really good or really bad, right? Right? Now, let me back up in history. 
to illustrate how it could be really good or really bad. The early church followed the Bible as their guide for life. Would that be good or bad? Really good. But then they started putting their own things, their traditions over scripture. And that's how you develop the papal system. Did that end up being a good or a bad thing? Ends up being a bad thing, putting tradition over scripture. Muhammad comes along and said, you know, the Bible's good. But the Christians corrupted it. Here is the Quran. Well, Quran didn't come around for a couple hundred years after him, but supposedly it's based on his words. By the way, the research now is not looking good for the Quran. Um, Oh, I just went blank on a guy's name. Uh, There are some scholars now that are digging into stuff and they're finding out that a lot of what was said about Muhammad, the classical story of the development of of Islam, doesn't fit the archaeology at all. And it doesn't fit the records. It's really interesting stuff. But anyway, he claimed the Bible was corrupted by Christians. Here's the Quran, New Revelation. Joseph Smith comes along and he says, hey, the Bible was good, but it's been corrupted. Here's the Book of Mormon. Notice a tendency through time. Put something over scripture. Ellen White comes along. Claims to have dreams and visions. If you put it over scripture, it's going to be what? Trouble. Big trouble. And she kept saying she was a lesser light leading to the greater light. In other words, you always judge it by scripture. You don't ever put anything over scripture. And you, I don't care who it is, if somebody is putting anything over Scripture, that's dangerous. Can we agree on that? The Bible should be our authority. And if the Bible is inspired by God and somebody else is inspired by God, they will be in harmony with it and they'll be happy being with the Bible's ultimate authority, right? If they claim, oops, I've got something to correct the Bible. <laughs> no, I'm not following that. Ellen White went through that Millerite movement as a teenager. And from then on, she was very opposed to setting any kind of dates for the coming of Christ. She kept referencing Matthew, that Jesus said not to do it. And she would reference that God had shown her not to do it as well. Take a look at some of her statements. You will not be able to say that he, Jesus, will come in one, two, or five years. Neither are you to put off his coming by stating that it may not be for 10 or 20 years. She says this in 1892. Think of that statement. You can't set hardly any kind of a date without being contrary to that. Because there are some people who say, oh, I won't set a day or a year, or I won't set a date for Christ's coming. I'll just set the year. Or I won't set the year, I'll just say it's within this decade or whatever. Well, so if I say he's not going to be here, if I pick a date more than 10 years away, she says, you can't do that. But if I pick one that's less than five years away, she says, you can't do that. So I'm going to pick seven years. (laughs) 
Except two years into it, it's now less than five years and it's no good anymore. No matter what date you set, it's going to end up crossing that one. I thought that was interesting. She says some other things. The repeated efforts to find new dates for the beginning and close of the prophetic periods and the unsound reasoning necessary to sustain these positions not only leads minds away from the present truth, but throw contempt upon all efforts to explain the prophecies. The more frequently a definite time is set for the second advent and the more widely it is taught, the better it suits the purposes of Satan. Ooh, she's coming down pretty hard on date setting, isn't she? Uh, Let me illustrate why. A few years ago, I forget which year, but it was on May 25, Harold Camping said that Jesus was coming. And it started making national news. And, ooh, could Jesus really be coming on May 25? Well, there were some of us that were saying no. A friend of mine, a guy by the name of Doug Batchelor, we've been friends since we were in college, um, he pulled an interesting stunt with Harold Camping. Doug Batchelor is in charge of a television ministry called Amazing Facts. And uh, he, he contacted Camping's organization and said, hey guys, I would like to buy your radio and television network, your media network. I'll give you X number of millions of dollars for it. It was a lowball offer. He said, but here's the deal. You say Jesus is coming on May 25, I'll take occupation May 26. You can have it up until your date, but I get it the next day. Obviously, Doug Batchelor doesn't think that camping's right because Doug knows, God, Jesus said, nobody knows the day or the hour. Don't set a date. Well, camping's organization wouldn't sell. What does that tell you about their certainty of their date? He was asking other people to invest in their stuff in his date and teach the world, but he wasn't willing to sell his own network and, not give, and have it given away the day after the date. That was interesting. I will tell you, on May 26, the national news media had a field day poking fun at Bible prophecy, just like this statement said to be careful of. Uh, After the time has passed, he excites ridicule and contempt of its advocates. Those who persist in this error will at last fix upon a date too far in the future for the coming of Christ. Thus, they will be led to rest in a false security, and many will not be undeceived until it's too late. Human nature is to procrastinate. And if Jesus isn't coming for five more years, then I'm not going to wait. I'm not going to get ready now. I'm going to get ready a couple months before then. And what if it's too far in the future? And he shows up earlier than you expected. This is the neat thing about we are now living in the time of the end. He could come at any time. You need to live ready to meet Jesus. Uh, Every time I see somebody setting a date, I'm hoping it's the date too far in the future. And I contradict them, and they don't like it. But I think it's sound. Our position has been one of waiting and watching with no time proclamation to intervene between the close of the prophetic periods in 1844 and the time of our Lord's coming. 
We do not know the day or the, nor the hour or when the definite time is, and yet the prophetic reckoning shows us that Christ is at the door. Here's the neat thing. 1844, when they messed up, was based on time prophecies. They got the event wrong. They got the date right. But at the end, you have to do it all over again, this time without a date. Daniel 11, the prophecy for the time of the end, has no dates in the time of the end section. All you have is a series of events, and the series has begun. So it matches the prophecy that you're going to have to do it, but without time. So here's what I do. It's in harmony with this statement. Here's what I tell people. You want to know when Jesus is coming? Everything I know in Bible prophecy could easily be fulfilled in less than a year and Jesus be here. On the flip side of it, God has been known to put holds on things. And he could put holds any time when his people or the world isn't ready for something. So he could be here in less than a year and you also need to be ready to die of old age, even if you're one of the younger people in the room. And if you're not ready to leave here in less than a year and not ready to die of old age, you're not ready. That's what it means to live at the time of the end. To live in that, be ready now, be ready to be here for a while. You can't know. You're in a time with no dates. It matches everything in scripture. Again and again, I've been warned in regard to time setting. There never again will be a message for the people of God that will be based on time. We are not to know the definite time either for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit or for the coming of Christ. Huh. So, if I'm, let's put it this way. Suppose I'm wrong, she's wrong, and Jesus was wrong. And somebody is able to know the date. Would that be any advantage over me being ready all the time? Would it give me any advantage? No. But I watch person after person after person set dates and get it wrong and bring ridicule and contempt upon God's word. So when Jesus says don't set times, I think he really means don't set times, just live ready. And if you live ready and you're pointing the people, look, the stuff is happening, be ready. Everybody's going to be fine. So my plea is, if you meet anybody setting any kind of dates for the coming of Jesus, avoid it. And I don't care if it's prophetic day for a year or they say, whoops, well, we're not going to use prophetic anymore. We're just going to use literal time. And they usually use the 1290, 1335 to do it as literal time from some event. Ignore them. Because over and over it's been dangerous for people and their salvation because people believe it, what they're told from some date, the date comes and it goes, and they throw the prophecies out and they throw the Bible out and they give up on a relationship with Jesus. Don't go there. All right. Now, so, any other questions? Gave you time to think of some. Yes, got one right here. Uh, microphone. I don't know if I'm going to strike any bad chords with anybody, but it, it makes no difference. It's, it's a question. Go for it. But didn't Joseph Smith in 1847 meet 
a golden angel along with another one that was Jesus and give him the golden tablets for him to write. That's what he claims. That's what he claimed. But it kind of it's kind of crazy though because they was claiming that Jesus was coming back in 1844, and just three years later, Joseph Smith claimed that he seen him. You know what I'm saying? I do. The eight. I'm not a Mormon, but I'm just. Oh, I, I, I've just I researched this. a little bit too. No, there's an interesting book put out by the Baha'i faith. I don't know if you've ever heard of Baha'i. Um, it's. It's a crossbreed of all kinds of stuff in Baha'i. They've got a really neat temple in uh, Chicago that I've been in. But they have a book of the stuff going on in the 1840s. And they point out 1844 and the Millerite movement. They point out there's all kinds of stuff. We have Karl Marx turning the French Revolution into Marxist socialism. We have... Evolution coming in with, uh, come on, riding on the beagle, Darwin. Darwin. I just went blank. I couldn't remember the ship he's on. I couldn't remember his name. (laughs) And uh, you have all kinds of stuff breaking loose at this time. And here's an interesting thing. If Satan knows that you're entering the time of the end time period in 1840s, even though the whirlwind hasn't started yet, in Revelation 12, 12, it says, when he knows his time is short, he comes down the earth with big tr- and causes lots of trouble. Boom! 1840s! It comes on. Now, I'll share something that I haven't wrapped my mind all the way around yet. I don't know if it means anything or not. Remember I was showing you at one point how there are similarities between King of the North and King of the South. Uh, They both got a capital. One gets Rome, one gets Constantinople. They both attack God's people right down the line. I mentioned there were time prophecies for both of them. I gave you what I knew is solid. Here's one that I wonder about that's not as solid. The Muslim calendar starts from 612. When Muhammad supposedly met somebody in a cave that gave him a message from heaven. Just like Joseph Smith. Isn't that interesting? And uh, they start their dates from there. If you were to run 1260 years on the Muslim calendar from 612, what date would you come up with? 1814. You would think. But that's not the date you come up with. The reason it's not is a Muslim year is not 365 days. That's why Ramadan moves all over the place on the calendar. It's a shorter year. And so on the Muslim year, 1260 years from when Muhammad gets his visions, it brings you to the year 1844. It's related to your question, I think. Satan is throwing all kinds of stuff. Now, you have to dig in the scripture and find out what's true and what's not.
but there's all kinds of stuff thrown up. And if Satan's throwing up that kind of stuff, there must be something true there that he's covering. Uh, so, good question. Really good question. <laughs> uh, as I said, I wasn't sharing everything I know, but that triggered something else. <laughs> okay. Any others? Because we're almost out of time. Maybe one more question and we're done. But if not, we can be done and give you just a slightly longer break. All right, let's close with prayer. Dear Lord, thank you for your word. And Lord, help us always to be in harmony with your word, the Bible, and with Jesus. Lord, help us to be willing to listen to others who claim they have a message from you. But help us to always be ready to test it and hang on to the good and throw out the bad. In Jesus' name, amen.